Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer, and I've lived with type 1 diabetes for almost four decades and enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living their best life with this disease. Today's guest, Nupur Lalveni, is the founder of the Blue Circle Diabetes Foundation in India. And that's just one of many things that she's got going on. I knew she would be the perfect guest, and she didn't disappoint. But before we dive in, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit organization. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just click the donate link on my website. Number two, my affiliate and resources page feature reputable brands and services that make life with diabetes a more pleasant one. You can find all the deals at diabetesdailygrind.com. And finally, stay engaged. Love, like, share, and comment on all things social media. Sign up for the e-newsletter. Leave an iTunes review. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click on the Amazon banner on the website before ordering. It doesn't cost you a thing and there's a little change my way. All right, let's get started. All right, Nupur, welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. I think if my memory serves me correctly, you are my first podcast guest who resides. Ella, you tell everybody where you reside. Wow, thank you so much, Amber. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'm Nupur and I'm from India. And uh, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Ah, yes. And there's so many questions. We're going to jump into this. And I start most episodes with, and I'm saying, everybody, I want to hear your diagnosis story because we're diagnosed with the same disease, but our stories can be very different. So tell me about what it was like, how old you were to be diagnosed with type. Yeah. So I was eight years old and we, my family knew nothing about type 1 diabetes, not even that it existed. And I had all the classical symptoms. I had weight loss and you know, hunger and having to drink too much water, going to the washroom a lot. It was all there and it was, you know, it was just out there, but we didn't know. And then, you know, lucky for me, but my father, you know, kind of had a hunch and my parents are not medical professionals, but my father still felt like maybe I could have diabetes. And where the thought occurred to him was when I go to when I go to the loo, there would be like, you know, black ants in the loo. And it's an old wives tale that says that, you know, the black ants are attracted to sugar. My father put two and two together and said, I think my child has diabetes. And, you know, that caused quite sort of a hullaboo at home. And my mom wasn't happy with that. But we went and got tested. And unfortunately, the lab where we got tested, the guy said that her reports are normal and the kid is OK. There's no problem. <laughs> Did they take blood? I mean, what were they yeah. determining? They took blood and they still thought you were fine. Yeah, yeah, they took blood and they still thought I was fine. And, you know, I'm grateful to my father for insisting. And he got really mad at them. And he said, this is, I know there's a problem and there's something not right with my child. And, you know, I, I don't trust you anymore. And then we went to another lab. So they said, okay, we'll redo the test and, you know, we'll uh, check again. And then they sort of acknowledged that they made a mistake. They slipped up and they used, uh, so my parents still, they've preserved the reports from all of these years ago and uh, they've used like a whitener on the on the report to sort of scratch out. So it was crazy. Wow. Then, 
Yeah, uh, we went to another lab and my blood sugars were 636. So, you know, finally we knew something's wrong. And, well, and the guy at the lab, so the guy at the lab said, you know, you, you know, she's, her sugars are extremely high. Like this is absolutely not normal. And you must take her to a hospital right now. Like if you take her home, I cannot guarantee she'll be okay. So, you know, figure out your logistics, but you uh, go straight from the lab to the hospital. And I'm glad he said that because... The regular thing to do would have been to go home, think about it, discuss maybe, you know, because we don't really know what we're up against. So then uh, my parents took me to the hospital and that's how it all began. Well, when you got to the hospital, I mean, that's you, that story not is very similar to mine. And then I was eight years old and, you know, they took my blood sugar because I had all the same symptoms. And they told my mom, literally, you have to drive her right now to the ER children's hospital in the city where we're going to call an ambulance. You cannot go home whatever. And so I'm glad that they shared that sense of urgency with you because that is life-saving. So you get to the hospital, you start learning about having type 1 diabetes. Did they immediately, how long did you stay in the A couple of days, I think five days. Of, I mean, not over a week, but definitely. So it was within a week. And I, the only one thought, you know, and it's so funny because as a child, my perspective was so different to, you know, maybe an adult diagnosis or to my parents. My parents were obviously shattered. You know, right. the first night we checked into the hospital and they said, you know, we're going to give her insulin for the first time and let's hope her body doesn't reject it or you know the regular stuff that they probably say you know all the disclaimers and stuff and my parents were really stressed I mean you know they thought that what if you know my body doesn't accept it or if there's a problem or if there's an emergency but obviously you know insulin was what I needed and I was absolutely okay and I had no idea what was going on I mean I knew something's up and I saw my parents crying for the first time and that really kind of it startled me because you know I felt like have I done something wrong is there you know I didn't think that there's a you know something that uh, is bothering them so much so the next day my mom comes to me and she says you know what you have and they used to call it juvenile diabetes back yeah. then right yeah so she said you know what you have you have something called juvenile diabetes and I said okay mom and then she says you know what that is you have to take shots you have to take insulin shots and I said okay mom no problem and then she's <laughs> like oh no, you don't understand you have to take insulin shots every day like each time you eat and I was cool I mean I was like okay I wasn't ever scared of needles per se and I still like to show off that you know I'm strong and I know I'm scared so it didn't matter to me but I know it was my parents were shattered with the diagnosis initially so that was a tough time but for me as a kid I think I was more than anything I was bored spending a couple of days in a like a boring hospital with like people that are sick and dying and you're a kid and uh, my parents got me a bunch of like Nancy Drews and a you know like novels to read and they got me coloring books and stuff but it was incredibly boring and there's a thought that's kind of stuck in my head ever since that if there's a kid in a hospital that's diagnosed then you know I would go dress up like a you know like a clown or something and just kind of make it a little fun put it I got to say, the hospital that I was diagnosed in, Oklahoma Children's Hospital, I, as an adult, volunteered there and was a part of the kid, oh, what do they call it? The present cart or whatever. So I would come by and give you presents and talk about life. And these kids did not all of them had type 1 diabetes. They were there for various reasons. But man, just like you said, and my parents brought up my roller skates. I was roller skating around the hospital floor. Wow. Because I needed to do something. I was there for almost two weeks. It was totally ridiculous. But so I get where when you say that it's, yeah, you're bored. I love that your parents gave you the books and all that. So I want to shift into, okay, so now you're eight years old. You're giving insulin injections. 
Were you ever on an insulin pump? Yes. So I've used a pump for about six years, five and a half or six years. So about nine months ago, my pump gave me some trouble and, you know, I was having issues with the insulin delivery. So I switched back to MDI. But the last about six years, I've been using a pump. And I use the Medtronic 722, the really basic sort of old pump. So in India, everything's out of pocket and there's no kind of insurance or coverage. So like you have to pay for your own, you know, everything from strips to insulin to pumps to CGF. Well, and something about this too. Okay, so there's a number of questions I have with that. It, okay, is Medtronic the only pump that's available to you in India? Or do you have yeah. Omnipod or Tandem? Oh, no, we don't actually. And I know there's a lot of people, you know, from our community that are really very excited about trying the Omnipod or the Tandem, but they, they're just not available. Until very recently, Medtronic was the only company. Sometime last year, Gipsomed also kind of came into India with the pump, the Swiss company. Yeah, okay. And let me ask you this. Do you have access to inhaled insulin? No, but I, I'm glad you asked me this because I've actually tried it. So a friend of mine, yeah, a friend of mine from the States was coming down and, you know, he said, you know, this is this really, there's this really amazing thing that I want you to try. And it's just crazy. It's incredible. And you're going to love it and this and that. And so I think two or three years ago, I tried a Frida and it was fabulous, of course, but it isn't here yet. Well, and it's so fascinating to me because I have friends in the UK and we're all in Australia and we're all talking about like what you have access to. And it's crazy to me. And we're going to get into cost here in a second. But OK, do you wear a CGM? Yes, I wear the Libre. I actually wear the Libre Pro. This is another interesting aspect to uh, CGM. So in India, we have three types of CGMs. One is the Medtronic Guardian Connect that works sort of uh, independent of the pumps. I mean, with, uh, there are Medtronic sensors with the pumps. That's a different thing. Yeah. Then the Medtronic Guardian Connect, there's the Libre consumer version. And there's something called the Libre Pro, the professional version. Now, among the three of these, the Libre Pro is actually the cheapest. So a lot of us here actually use the Libre Pro. So it's typically supposed to be used only by professionals, healthcare professionals to kind of slap it on to a patient and then, yeah. you know, like do like a post-mortem two weeks later. That's, uh, well, I there's so many things I'm like blown away by all this. Okay, going back to the fact that you said you pay out of pocket. <clears throat> and so, um, I don't want to quote this because I don't know that I can read it. But you were in one of the articles that I read, you, it's mentioned that many developed countries provide accommodations for people with type 1 diabetes because we're classified as disabled. And I know that the diabetes world is like, Amber, don't say we're disabled, but we can be classified as disabled. Don't like that, but whatever. So we are all fighting insurance to be able to get our things paid for. And there are so many, inter I mean, like crazy things we have to go through. So when you say out of pocket for everything, insulin, test strips, which that blows my mind, which I still have to pay out of pocket for that myself, I guess, now that I say that out loud. What does that look like for you financially every month? So, you know, we actually ran up, we have a pretty active Facebook community. And I'm sorry, you know, I have this sort of annoying habit to kind of circle back. Okay. So we actually ran a poll in our, on our Facebook community and 49% of the people said they spend about anywhere between 6,000 to 10,000 rupees. And if you give me a second, I'll quickly look up yeah, what that is in US dollars. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be curious about that as well. And no matter how it boils down, that is, I'm sure, a lot of money for many people. I mean, the majority of people living with this disease. Yeah. Well, it's anywhere between 75 to $125, which is 
I mean, I know that it's criminal, the prices for insulin in the States, but then also the average income in India is lower and there's, it's just hot. And we're going to get into the foundation here in a second. My other question for you when it comes to supplies, are they easily, I mean, can you just go to the pharmacy and get it? Do you need a prescription? Do they have access? I mean, do you have access to everything? Yeah. So, you know, this is, I know this is going to probably blow your mind, but I can walk into a pharmacy and I can buy insulin over the counter. I know that's not the case in the States unless you buy, you know, the regular insulin from Walmart for 25 bucks. But, you know, I've seen that on a lot of uh, forums, but but sure, you can walk into a pharmacy and say, hey, I want my Novo Rapid and they just give it to you. I mean, I think they should ask for a, a prescription, but they I've never been asked for a prescription in years. That's so crazy. Yeah, again, mind blown with that. But I'm glad that you can do that because if you're in a crunch situation, you that can work. So the besides being fascinated by what's going on in India and with the diabetes community, because I'm watching the numbers and you guys are, it's insane how rapidly people are being diagnosed. And I'm curious, and I don't think you could answer this. It's just a statement necessarily, but is that because we have better technologies and we're trying to get everyone tested because we know that there's a higher risk? Or, you know, and maybe people were walking around with diabetes and they didn't know it forever. You know, so is the increase in diagnosed cases because we're actually testing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, that's neither here nor there. But, okay, so what I really want to focus on is you created, correct me if I'm wrong, the Blue Circle Diabetes Foundation. And it's among the largest patient-led communities for all diabetes. That's amazing. Like, how did you get this started? Let's talk about what sparked this and how you made it happen. So about eight years ago, I moved out of home and uh, home was Mumbai. And I sort of thought like, it's a good idea to move out, live independently, you know, work a job. I mean, I got a good opportunity in another country. Uh, in another city about three hours away. So I thought it was a happy balance. I know my parents were worried, you know, when when I said I want to move out and stay alone, not because of anything else, but because of the hypos and the, you know, stuff like that, like the everyday diabetes stuff. Yeah. And they said, how are you going to manage and you want to live alone? And what if you get a hypo and who's going to help you and who's going to administer glucagon and all of that stuff? And I said, you know, no, don't worry. I've figured it out. It's I, I've got this. Yeah, you know, you don't have right. to worry at all. And then I moved out and I, you know, the first night in my apartment living alone, I was like, oh shit. I mean, like, how am I going to, what if what my mom said was right? And what if I get a hype? Like, who am I going to, you know, call? Or what am I going to do? And then uh, I just, I mean, you figure it out, right? Like it's not yeah. too hard. And, you know, I'd keep beside the bed, I'd keep my fully charged mobile and I'd keep yeah. glucose, water and stuff. And I had my family on speed dial. So, you know, touch wood, I've not had a problem, no severe hypos living alone. But uh, so so that is how I sort of moved out. And I was associated with smaller communities back home. And I kind of felt the void in terms of, you know, not having these to kind of talk to or meet with. And I'm not terribly social. Actually, I'm not social at all. But <laughs> I still felt like it would be nice to kind of, you know, for there to be some community or something that, you know, people yeah. like uh, in case I would ask something or share something. And uh, so I used to, I, I kind of looked up this local hospital and I, I just thought, okay, let me just, you know, walk in and I don't have a plan. I don't want to meet the doctor. I, I just want to hang out. I mean, I just want to see what's happening. Yeah. So I used to hang out in the outpatient department of this <laughs> one hospital. 
And they used to ask me like, okay, have you come here to meet a doctor? With who do you want to see? But I said, don't worry about me. I'm here to hang out. And, you know, I was. it was funny because they didn't know how to react to me. And the funny thing was that the load of patients was so high. I was actually, I actually ended up helping them, you know. I would like talk to families while they were waiting for the educator or the doctor to sort of see them. So I think they were actually happy that, I don't know, they probably thought, who's this crazy girl that keeps coming? But I mean, now that she's here, she's one of us. So that's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. And it's like, in the, I got to say in the States, like you would have been escorted out by the police, especially if you were to show up every single day. They're like, who is this crazy person talking to our patients? And I think that's great. So you got to see firsthand the, tra- I mean, I'm going to say the trauma, but the people when you're in that situation are stressed out. And so, yeah, I'm sure that you were a, a really a beacon of light in that scenario. So what did you learn from that? And why, how did that circle around to being turned into a foundation? So slowly I began to realize that, you know, people, I mean, if they see a doctor or an educator or some someone in a position of authority, it's more like, you know, I have to listen to this person because you know, they know what's good for me. But if they see someone they consider an equal or someone they, you know, think that, okay, this person is just like me. She has diabetes. And, you know, they just they just really open up and they, sh- they really share all of their fears and their, yeah. you know, so I want to give you this example. Um, so there's this family, two-year-old child. This was many years ago, maybe six or seven years ago. A two-year-old daughter that got diagnosed with T1. And the mom, she asked me, you know, I'm really worried. Is my daughter going to get married? Uh-huh. And I was like, wait, you know, that's nuts. Like, you got to make sure she survives. I mean, you have to ensure she thrives with the one. And then, so so there's all of these socio-cultural sort of issues in this part of the world. I, I know they're looking out for their kid, but it's a bit crazy, right? Well, okay. So that is something that is on my list of things I wanted to bring up because I have not met anyone that I know of that has been a part of an arranged marriage. And, and I'm going to sound insanely ignorant. So please give me some grace with this is in an arranged marriage. If you have type one diabetes, are you seen as less valuable? Yes. You're literally seen as, uh, you know, like, so I speak from the experience of the community. My personal experience, I've not been through this. So when people are of marriageable age, often, you know, families sort of along with the extended family, they look for potential partners together, you know. Sure. And I've not been ever sort of comfortable with this kind of setup. So, you know, I was, I know I'm not cut out for this. So I never you know, went through through all of it. So I don't have any personal experience there, but I've seen like an, an incredible amount of people go through, you know, go through the motions. And a lot of times people are rejected solely on the basis of being T1, which is nuts, but yeah. it's really like, you're like a defective piece, you know, yeah. that's the vibe I get from the friends I talk to. So does that get the same for men and women or is it just T1 women? Sorry. Yeah. It's the same for both, but I, that it's definitely harder for women in anywhere in the world, right? I mean, yeah. But but I think it's women do get the raw end of the deal here as well. That is so. I mean, you're already. I mean, having a diabetes diagnosis, no matter how old you are, or what where you live, is a tough one. But to see yeah. or to be seen as damaged goods and less valuable is just oh man, that is tough. So like you're not a person anymore. You know, you're you're a thing. You're a thing. So, and that's, okay, so let's talk about everything that the Blue Circle Diabetes Foundation offers, because I know you've got an app, you're connecting people. And just tell me more about what all you're doing. 
Yeah. So we, you know, about two years ago, we thought, hey, let's let's make an app because there are there are tons of diabetes apps on the store, but we hadn't really come across any app that was a sort of a little more India specific, maybe, or you know, something that's made, you know, by diabetics and for diabetics. So we, you know, got down to doing that, and and now uh, the Blue Circle Diabetes app has over thirty two million blood sugar records that people have put in, and it's just growing, you know, because people are finding it useful and they're using it. And we have a very sort of open system, you know. We have a section on the app which says that if you have a new feature idea, tell us, you know, and um, to improve the app for you. So that's about the app. Then there's another thing that we started called the Buddy Project Helpline, and I love uh, it. it yeah. I'm sorry, keep going. Yeah. It's basically a diabetes and mental health helpline. And the reason the helpline came into existence was, you know, back in 2020 when COVID just started and there were lockdowns and it was basically like crazy everywhere. I received a phone call from an acquaintance, a T1 girl. Um, this was at like 11 in the night and she was sobbing and crying and she was like out of breath and I, I, it really freaked me out, you know. I, uh, I mean, I later sort of uh, looked it up Probably, you know, she was having a panic attack or something. And I'm not a mental health professional, but I was just, you know, on the phone with her. And, you know, I mean, should I come over to your place? What do you want me to do? Like, I, she just wanted to kind of let it out and talk and vent. And so that's when we realized that the lockdown and and COVID has really, you know, there's been a huge negative impact on the mental health of, you know, people with diabetes. And so that's where the idea came up that we need to have a helpline. We need to have a sort of a resource that people can tap into. And, you know, people call me, you know, sometimes at three, three in the morning. I mean, hey, my son's having a severe hyper, what should I do? And it's okay. Like maybe sometime I take the call, but what if I'm asleep? You know, I'm completely sort of, you know, very tired. I don't see your call. Or what if my phone's on silent or it's switched off? And it's a lot of pressure for one person. So having this helpline, the helpline is on the app, by the way. So people can, you know, log into the app and, you know, look at the profile of all the buddies. And there are a bunch of buddies, about eight or nine buddies who speak about seven or eight different languages. That's so great. No, yeah. So no one should feel like, you know, for lack of knowing English or any other language. I mean, we shouldn't reach out or, or you know, shouldn't ask for help. And we've done, I mean, last I checked, we've done over 60,000 minutes of, you know, one-on-one counseling, all the buddies together. And I know people, I mean, sometimes they know it's a very small issue or something, you know, little that's bothering them. But being able to talk to someone, you know, someone who doesn't judge you and understands you because they're kind of going through the same thing. And it's also a free service. So, you know, the concern about spending money isn't there, especially because a lot of people or families may feel that mental health is not something I want to kind of, you know, maybe spend money on or it's all hogwash. So I think this is a kind of an in-between, like a bridge between if we feel like someone's having trouble or something, we definitely kind of refer them, uh, you know, suggest that they go see a shrink yeah. or a doctor, but basic stuff. And we've been trained by a team of psychiatrists and a team of endos. So uh, that was sort of a, like a nice add-on. So that's the helpline. And then we have something called Project Gaia. In Project Gaia, we're talking about women and diabetes because there's really a very unique kind of, uh, you know, set of problems. I mean, your blood sugars are all over the place with so many things and then add to it, you know, your period and your sort of uh, hormones. And it's just crazy. So we kind of, we have workshops where we talk about everything under the sun. And sometimes we just chill and it's just like, okay, let all the girls get together and just kind of, you know, meet and talk and that kind of thing. 
Is that an in-person gathering? We started in-person recently in the last few months, but all through COVID, it was online. Right. I would love to attend that for all so many reasons. And let me go back to you with the helpline. And you said that you have you were trained by endocrinologists and people of the m- mental health profession. How did you approach them with that? I mean, I, it's a no-brainer. That would be valuable to what you guys are doing. Was there any pushback or were they like, yeah, we're here to train you guys and we'll do whatever it takes? So the second option. So there's a pretty cool endo that I know and I I don't consult him. I don't see him as a patient, but he seems like a really supportive person. And he's associated with a pretty large hospital here in my city. And he's always been very sort of open and forthcoming about like, you know, if there's something you think we can do or if there's something that we can collaborate on. In fact, they have these medical conferences annually and they bring us in as So we organize a run for them. We do a little fun run kind of thing. And we they call us as speakers and stuff. So... We are a pretty good relationship with this one Endo and his team. So when we asked, they were more than happy to uh, help. And with the psychiatrist, I didn't really know anyone personally. So I literally, you know, sent out the cold email and I said, hey, listen, I know you don't know me and I don't know you too, but I've kind of seen you on social media and on Twitter. and I think you're really cool. And can you please train us? I love that. I'm an, I'm a friendly stalker myself. And that's how I'm having this interview with you today is because I see, I'm like, oh, I need to speak to that someone. And all I can do is reach out. So good yeah. on you for having the courage to do that. And so there are a couple other things I wanted. So we, you talked about the run. So you've, oh, A, I want to start with moving out of your parents' home in your mid to late 20s. Now you're in a different city. Do were your parents helping to manage your diabetes when you lived at home or were they like keeping an eye on things or were you completely in control? I would say they were keeping an eye on things a little bit, but I was mostly kind of independently managing it. I think I'm not sure like at what exact age that changed. But when I was really diagnosed, of course, you know, I was completely under their care and stuff. I started self-injecting pretty quickly, but yeah, but they kept an eye on things. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. And so now with you living in a new city, and my mom worries about me all the time and she'll go whatever. So do they call and check in on you or? So I was going to ask you, you know, I, I know the Dexcom has the Clarity app and the follow feature and stuff. And, and do your parents like follow? No, God, no. A, they wouldn't know how to use it and I'd have to train them, which I don't have the patience. But no, the only person that sees that data is my certified diabetes educator. And that's only recently because I went to a new one and she was like, let's look at your A1C is 5.7, which is great, but let's look at your Clarity oh. Yeah, it's the lowest it's ever been. I'm proud of that, I guess. But she was like, let's look at the clarity. Let's look at the numbers and make sure that you're not having serious hypos. And so I was like, okay, here I go. Relinquish control. Let this person have access to my numbers. And I mean, she's incredible. She is incredible. We walked through the whole situation. So that's a great question. And thank you for asking me. And I'm not married and I'm not dating anyone right now. And I don't know that I would share my numbers. I mean, it's right. Well, and I've been doing it for so almost 40 years. Like I feel like I've got it down. Yeah. Now, I will say that if I go for a girls weekend or whatever, and I'll tell them the code on my phone. And I said, if I ever act weird, or if you found me passed out, here's my code. And just check my blood sugar. And if it's either too high or too low, call 911. I mean, it's just one of those. So anywho, so yeah, I don't really share. So if you were married or in a relationship, would you share your number? I mean, I actually, I feel quite like you. I don't feel the need to share. I yeah. my, my parents, I know my parents are concerned. So, and by the way, so we don't have Dexcom here in yeah. India. So through the Blue Circle Diabetes app, we, we created this follow feature. And, you know, I wear the Libre Pro and sometimes with the transmitter. And I know my parents are interested. They don't want to kind of infringe on my, you know, whatever, like independence. 
Yeah. Yeah. But I know they, I mean, they probably makes them feel like I'm okay and that makes them feel nice. So they do follow and they don't really sort of call me or comment much. But once in a while, you know, like if I'm sleeping and it's like early morning and my mom's seen like I'm in hypo. And so this has happened one or two times. He's called in to check, but uh, <laughs> not much. Oh, that's funny. Okay, so the other thing I want to touch on is you run marathons. You're one of those type ones that run marathons, which I love. I love that you're that physically active. So how did you shift into that? Because that's no small task. Yep. So my dad's a runner. I mean, you know, he... And while we were growing up, we the marathons were... The runs were actually like a family picnic for us, you know. So my dad would do the 26 miles. Mom and my... I have a younger sister. So the three of us, my mom, my sister and me, we would do like the dream run, you know, like about three, four miles, whatever. And uh, so that's how it started. And then I felt like, hey, if dad can do it, I can do it, right? So that's kind of how the bug came in. And I just kept at it. And I don't push myself too much. And I also have some injuries now. So I'm not actively running a lot. I'm just doing a little bit of strength training and some physiotherapy. But that's kind of where the running bug really bit me. Uh, Thanks to my dad. Well, I love that. I mean, and staying physically active, no matter what you're doing, is very important. And something else I'm curious about, and this is, again, going to make me sound, I hope to goodness grace, just not sound ignorant, but like I'm a big fan of Indian food and like to cook it myself. I like to believe it's good. But the carb ratios, because I count carbs when I give my injections, This there's just so many other factors that go into that. So when you eat food outside of your traditional, and I say that loosely, culture, do you find it difficult to figure out the carbs? Yes, it's definitely a challenge when, you know, you're kind of eating something out of the ordinary, something that you're not used to. And I mean, we all know carb counting is such a lot of guesswork, right? Unless you know, (laughs) unless it's written on the the back or something, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out. So yes, I have been perplexed often. So last year I was in Europe, end of the year, and naturally the food is so different, right? It it's a lot of meat and bread and potatoes and that kind of stuff. So, and also I do low since the last few years. So I eat, I eat a lot of meat and veggies anyway. So I was, I was happy. I mean, I was like, okay, this is perfect. Just don't give me the potatoes and I'll have the rest. I'm with you on that. Like I do low carb and have for ages and I didn't even put it together with diabetes. It was more like, I just was like, gosh, I don't feel good if I eat this. Uh, So I started to figure, oh, wait, that because of the heavy carbs. Anywho, so it's nice to hear somebody else that is living uh, a low-carb diet and that you're able to manage that in wherever you are. I think that's the biggest challenge for a lot of us because we get stuck in, and I don't know about you, but I get stuck in the same meals at home because I'm like, oh, well, I know that even though it could affect my blood sugar differently every single time, I have a guesstimate as to what that carb count is going to be. Yeah, so I want to ask, okay, the last couple of questions and I ask every guest this currently is, do you have access to fresh fruits and vegetables within a two-mile radius? Yes. I don't have any problem at all in accessing, you know, healthy food. I know it it comes from a place of privilege. I live in a big city. I've actually never lived in the countryside. I have like little to no idea about, you know, I I know it's tough. I interact with community members that live in far-flung places or live in, uh, you know, small towns or villages. And it's a whole different uh, sort of scenario there. But I am grateful and lucky to have access to uh, pretty much everything I need. Well, that I mean, and that says a lot coming from a big city because there are so many food deserts, even here in the United States. And we're just now 
scratching the surface as to what that looks like and how do we find better options for people in general, not just people with diabetes, because we know that's going to help with their management. The other question that I have for you is, obviously, you got good education when you were diagnosed because you were in the hospital for quite some time and your parents helped with that whole transition. But do you feel like you've been given adequate educational materials with living with diabetes over the past, you know, 20 years that you've had it? And then I don't know if I answered the ask that court, court, but like when you go to the doctor, they're like, oh, here's the newest developments. Have you thought about this? Or yeah, tell me about your continuing education with this disease. Yeah. So I actually, I know this to be true for a lot of people. And I've actually had my best learnings through the online, you know, the online diabetes community. Yes. It's just incredible. I mean, I would have never known about low carb, you know, in all of these years. And India has such a carb heavy sort of way of eating, you know, it's like 70, 80% carbs. Uh, That's not for the blood sugars. And I just feel like I'm so grateful and lucky for, you know, friends online that I've never met and I probably never meet, you know, unless we're in each other's countries. But I think I've had the best learn. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I'm in a big city. I have access to, uh, you know, fairly decent doctors, but I don't think they they really know what it is like, right? Like uh, no doctor in my 27 years of T1 has ever told me that, you know, there's a thing called basal testing and that you must do it. I mean, to be fair, I haven't seen a doctor in like last six or eight years, maybe. I'm doing fairly decently. You know, my my last A1C was about 5.6. I'm a low carb. And, and, you know, uh, there was this time I was trying to break the six barrier, you know, a few years ago. And I told a doctor that, you know, I'm so frustrated. I'm doing everything right, dosing right. I'm eating low carb and I'm just not able to make it. I'll be happy with the 5.9 also, you know, like I just want to break this thing. And, you know, he tells me that, you know, you're crazy. This is, I mean, you should be happy that you have, yeah. you know, most of my patients have nine or eight or whatever. This is rubbish. I mean, you'll be okay. You're, you'll be fine. And that's when I realized that, you know, they're not going to get it like the way we get it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've like, I've never been offered an insulin pump or never, it's never been recommended because my A1C was always below 6.5. My management was fine. And it's just, it's crazy to me. But it's also, I'm glad that he or that person, I don't know if it was a he, but kind of made you take it down a notch that, hey, your A1C is great. You know what I mean? Because we hear all these negative stories about you should do better, shame. So it's kind of like, hey, give yourself a break. You're doing a really good job. So it's like a kudos, bittersweet. I don't know. But And, you know, I want to end with the fact that you mentioned as we started this conversation before recording that, and I understand the burden at some capacity is that people contact me daily, hourly about somebody who's newly diagnosed or I need this or I can't get this or I'm rationing insulin. And you said that someone had contacted you about it, somebody newly diagnosed. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks. So I, a friend of mine, she's a T1. She was wanting to connect me with a family, a 14-year-old girl that was newly diagnosed, they were in the hospital. And she said to me that, you know, I'm going to share her mom's number with you and you could kind of, you know, get her added to the community. But maybe they should get out of the hospital first and when they're a little uh, sort of comfortable mentally, that's when I'll connect you guys. I said, okay, cool. And this was maybe two, three days ago. And this evening I get a call from my friend saying, you know, the child passed away. And I was like, what? I mean, this is just unbelievable. We're living in 2020. You know, back in the 90s when I was diagnosed, I get it. Like if a lot of people don't know about T1 or whatever, I mean, I understand, but it's just not, it's, this is not acceptable. Like how can this be okay? And this is why I feel like the efforts that we're putting in need to be like, so like it, it needs to be multiplied. 
Uh, people know about you know the different types of diabetes and uh, I mean it's so challenging because a lot of people here in India also try out alternative therapies you know some want to try yoga some want to you know they actually stop insulin and try all these other things so it's really dangerous and there's huge need for a kind of awareness and what we part of what we do is go to schools like you know uh, public schools private schools corporates and we conduct these kind of awareness camps and uh, free blood sugar screenings so I think that I don't know, we just need to do a lot more to be able to reach out to doctors, to to children, to families. And make sure that people understand the severity of the situation and that we need to catch it early on. I couldn't agree more. And one of my advocacy efforts is any child, I mean, you go for your wellness checkups, hopefully every time their blood sugar should be checked. I mean, or if you go to the ER, I don't care how old you are, have your blood sugar checked because that can say so much or prevent somebody from something terrible. So I want to thank you. A, for being a guest, B, for all of your advocacy work and the Blue Circle Diabetes Foundation. I would like a copy of the poster that's behind you because I can't stop looking at it. I need that in my office. (laughs) Yeah, I'll be sure that in the show notes, there are links to everything that we've discussed. Is there anything else you want to say to the listeners about whatever you want to talk about? I think, you know, there's one last thing I want to say. Yeah. So a lot of people ask me, why why are you a community for people with all types of diabetes? Because, you know, T1 by itself, I mean, there's such a strong advocacy around T1 in particular. Yeah. And I think that, you know, well, unless you acknowledge and talk about the other types of diabetes, no one's going to know about T1 in particular. You know, people yeah. don't get it, like the general public. And that's why, and that's worked out, you know, for us and hopefully for the people that are associated with us as well, because... I see a lot of chatter on our channels about, you know, how T2s are learning from T1s and vice versa. And I think it's amazing because over the years, I've seen a lot of sort of fighting between the types of diabetes, like, you know, the T1s telling the T2s that you deserve this. You got. <laughs> yeah. this. I mean, go on, man. We're all in the same boat, more or less. Yeah, I totally agree. And I changed my tune a few years ago because I used to bash the type 2 community because I was like, you know, you had a choice. That's not how it yeah. works. And we know that now. And and that's unfair. So I applaud your efforts to have all people living with diabetes need the best care and they need people that are compassionate and want to help. I mean, that's what we're all here for is to help each other. So Nipora, thank you so much. And I will definitely stay in touch and be following what you are doing on the other side of the world with the Blue Circle Diabetes Foundation. Thank you, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. And please plan a trip to India. I'd love to meet you. I love learning about other cultures and how people in other countries manage their diabetes. I'm thrilled to now call Newport my friend and hope to visit her in India one day soon. Before I wrap up, I have a few quick reminders. Number one, don't forget to visit my resources and affiliate page for killer discounts. If you'd like to join this list of reputable brands, just hit us up at Penelope at DiabetesDailyGrind.com for details. Number two, I know you're listening. Thank you. So be kind and turn a little change my way. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. And finally, I'm here for my diapeeps and the medical community. So feel free to contact me on any social media platform or directly at amber at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. Yes, I'm-